0: Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we're discussing chapter 26, Gifts. This is from Paragon's point of view. We get to check in with our favorite insane live ship. <laughs> and uh, Amber is with him right now. And she is describing what's going on and painting a picture for Paragon to see. And we kind of learn through these pages that they have been sharing these companionable nights for a while and kind of getting to know one another. Right. She was seated, cross-legged, she had told him, on a folded blanket on the damp sand. She leaned back against his hull. The texture of her loose hair was finer than the softest seaweed. It clung to the grain of his wizardwood hull. When she moved, it dragged across his planks in strands before it pulled free. You almost make me remember what it was like to see, not just colors and shapes, but the times when sight was a pleasure to indulge in. And she announces that she has brought him something, a gift.
1: Right. And I think it's important to point out that what Amber has been doing when she comes to see him is explaining the view. At least that's what she's doing now in this moment. She's just telling him all the things he can't see and I think that's a really nice thing for her to do for him just to let him know what his surroundings look like and give him an idea because he probably wouldn't know what it looks like. I don't think he would have had a reason to be in this area before he came back with his eyes chopped off. So it's just a nice little familiarity thing. And he's really enjoying this time with her. And if we, as you read have another instance of him having feeling he can feel that her hair strands are finer than seaweed they're soft which again is weird because it's wood but that i think that implies that it can feel there are sensations
0: yeah this is i mean multiple instances now that they do feel something yeah so she has announced that she brought him a gift and he is incredibly surprised by this He says, I don't think anyone has ever brought me anything before. Of course, Amber is very surprised at that, saying, what, never? No one's ever given you a present? And he replies, where would I keep a possession? Well, I I did think of that. This is something you could wear, like this. Here, give me your hand. Now, I'm very proud of this, so I want to show it to you a piece at a time. It took me a while to do this. I had to oversize them, to get them to scale, you know. Here's the first one. Can you tell what it is? And so she sets these beads individually into each of his hand into his hands as she moves through them and he can guess what the shapes are. And it is a necklace that she has carved for him. Right. And there are 5 beads on it.
1: Yes, and we know that Amber is a skilled workswoman and she not started by making these little tiny beads for people to wear. And so the fact that she has used that and done something that was her most popular item and made it big scale so that it could work for him too is actually so sweet. And I'm sure very hard for her to do to get to scale, especially because we know that she kind of lets the wood direct her in the shape.
0: Yeah. So So. working with much larger pieces of, of wood at that point.
1: But the very first one, he feels around and it's a dolphin.
0: Mm -hmm. He heard the delight in her voice after he says, this is amazing. There's more. Move along the cord to the next one. There's more than one? Of course, it's a necklace. And so he is, as we see from his point of view, he's overjoyed. He is amazed at a gift and it's a struggle to keep his hands from like, not just ripping it from her and feeling everything. And like, he's just so excited about everything.
1: Right. And he wants to put it on immediately. As soon as he finds out it's a necklace, he is like, I want to put it on. And his hands are trembling and he just can't believe someone got him something. Like you said, like it's kind of sad to think that he's been around for this long and nobody has ever given him anything. I don't know, I just feel bad for him.
0: Five beads. A dolphin, a gull, a sea star, a crab, and a fish. And he says, this is wonderful. Is it beautiful? Does it look lovely on me? Why, you are vain. Paragon, I never would have guessed. He had never heard her so pleased. Yes, it looks beautiful on you, as if it belongs and I had worried about that. You are so obviously the work of a master carver that I feared my own creations might look childish against your fineness. So she kind of goes into it describing, you know, how she brought these shapes from different woods, that they're different grains and made out of different things, and she didn't want to color them at all because she thinks that the wood itself is the beauty and of course, she is explaining this as if she expects him to understand it, which brings him into, you know, even more of a closeness with her. Basically saying, like, yeah, of course, you're of a master carves, like a master wood carver as well. You understand what I'm talking about, the beauty in wood.
1: Right. And which is really interesting because I don't think he does understand wood in any capacity. There's, unless the Ludlux were. Also, carpenters in some way. <laughs> um, I don't think just because he's made out of wood doesn't mean he can recognize wood grains by feel. But apparently, that is something you can do. I also not have never worked with wood, so I don't know if you can actually feel if you closed your eyes if you could feel the difference between certain woods. But
0: probably, I would guess worked yeah. with them long enough.
1: Yeah, but uh, yeah, it was really it's really nice that Amber has number one, put all this thought into this gift, but number two has also made them with the intention that they would look good on him and was worried about them looking good on him. And I think it's just a level of care that Paragon has never had.
0: Yep. But in the next section, we kind of get to see the the change in Paragon happen again as he drifts from welcome and... Open and excited to very closed off and paranoid as Amber begs a question of Paragon, who in this moment is like, Yeah, of course, ask away.
1: Right. And this question stems from the last of the conversation where she's explaining the beads of wood, saying that she didn't want to paint them because natural wood is better. And from this, she asks the question How live ships? are colored even though it's not paint. Yeah, because works.
0: they are painted when they're not quickened, but when they do quicken, it's their own color. It's not actual paint on there anymore. And she kind of asks about the mechanics of that. And Paragon's uneasy about these questions because it touches too close on things that he's tried to kept, uh, you know, buried deep with, uh, inside of him saying they reminded him too sharply of how different he was from her. And she always seemed to ask them just when he was feeling closest to her. He responds, why are you the colors you are? How did you grow your skin, your eyes? Ah, I see. I thought perhaps it was something you willed. You seem such a marvel to me. You speak, you think, you move. Can you move all of yourself? Not just your carved parts like your hands and lips, but your planking and beams as well? And in his mind, he's thinking through, yeah, sometimes, like, we can move pretty much all of us. I can move my plankings. I can move them apart to let water seep in. To admit a sheet of silent water that spread and deepened as cold and black as night itself. But that would be unforgivable, cold-hearted treachery. Unforgivable, unredeemable. He jerked away from the burning memory and did not speak the word aloud. Why do you ask, he demanded, suddenly suspicious. What did she want from him? Why did she bring him gifts? No one could really like him. He knew that. He'd always known that. Perhaps this was all just a trick. Perhaps she was in league with Restart and Mingsley. She was here to spy out all of his secrets, to find out everything about the wizardwood, and then she would go back and tell them.
1: So I think this is something that's really interesting about Paragon is that sometimes he's so childlike in joy and trust and he's so very lonely. And so when people are nice to him, he wants to be their friend. He wants to get close, but then there's that wall that gets put up if they get too close to where all of a sudden you can't trust anyone. And I wonder if that's the Kenneth side peeking through, if that's the parts that Kenneth has put in him, the wariness of others. I, I, We know based off of some of the things that uh, happened in this chapter that obviously the youngest Ludluck that is the last to awaken him that died in that accident the first time. I think he was also mistreated by his father, but it just seems like a weird thing to think about of you can't trust anyone in this world. And I'm just trying to figure out if that's something that like Ludlucks feel in general or if that would be Kenneth because Kennet seems to exude that a lot.
0: Right. And with Igrit on his decks for what, 20 years or something as a pirate? Like True. that's He's had a lot of different and worse influences over the years. Definitely.
1: So Paragon asks if she didn't if Amber didn't mean to upset him, what did she mean to do? And she tries to explain that she just wanted to understand him. And to be fair, from Paragon's point of view, I can see why it would be really suspicious. She does only ask questions, like he said, when they're he's feeling like they're closest. However, I think from Amber's point of view, she probably does that because that's when he's in the best mood. And obviously his moods can change really, really quick and you don't want to ask him when he's in a bad mood. But I don't know. Maybe not.
0: Yeah, and she responds that she just wants to understand him because she is also lonely. Bingtown does not make new folk welcome. I get lonely, her voice was soothing. And so I reach out to you because I think you are as lonely as I am. Lonely. Pitiful. She thought he was pitiful and stupid. Stupid enough to believe that she liked him when she was really just trying to discover all his secrets. And because you would like to know the secrets of wizardwood, he tested her. His gentle tone took her in. She gave a quiet laugh. I'd be a liar if I said I wasn't curious. Whence comes the wood that can turn to life. What sort of a tree produces it, and where do such trees grow? Are they rare? No, they must be rare. Families go into debt for generations to possess one. Why? Her words echoed Mingsley's too closely. And so Paragon thinks he has his answer and yells out, as if you didn't know, why does Mingsley send you here? Does he think you, you will win him me over, you know, that I'll sell willingly for you? He just turns full on paranoid, suspicious, and yells at her and rips off the necklace and flings the beads away. And he's just railing against her, saying that he thinks I'm mad I will betray my family. He thinks that because they hate me and curse me and abandon me, that I will turn on them. But I am true. I was always true and always faithful, no matter what anyone else said or believed. I was true and I am still true. He lifted his voice in hoarse proclamation. Hear me, Ludlux, I am true to you. I sail only for my family, only for you. And he's... Heaving, he stops his tirade, he's panting into the night, and there's no sound from Amber. None at all, for a long time, and he thinks that she has left. Maybe she had crept off into the night, ashamed and cowardly. He swallowed and rubbed at his brow. It didn't matter. She didn't matter. Nothing mattered. Nothing. He rubbed at his neck, where the necklace cord had snapped. He listened to the waves creep closer as the tide rose. He heard the driftwood collapse into the fire, smelled the gust of smoke as it did so. He startled when she spoke. And she has not left, but was sitting sitting there trying to control her anger.
1: Definitely. I think one thing about Beloved, slash Amber or The Fool or whoever they are at the moment, but specifically Amber, one thing about them is that they're very slow to choose words. They're very, I guess maybe that's not the right way to phrase it. They're very,
0: They're very intentional yeah, in intention-
1: what they say and always put thought. They I think they really don't like to say things in anger that can't be taken back. I think that that's just their personality. But Amber here especially exudes that when she is waiting. She's just calming down. She's thinking And it's so interesting because Amber doesn't have the full picture and won't have the full picture of what's going on in Paragon's mind. But she at least now has a little bit more insight as to what he's thinking and what's going on when she's not around, that Mingsley is still showing up and that potentially that's what the misunderstanding is about. But I don't think it's fair to her that she was yelled at in this way Because she didn't know. And obviously, this is just bad communication on Paragon's part. He was testing her and trying to trick her into a trap. And then she fell for it. But the thing is, is that she was just being honest. And it wasn't malicious. And it was just, yeah, of course I'm curious about where you come from. You're a Marvel. Instead of a, a, yes, I want to know all the secrets so I can sell it to Mingsley. And I think that it shows the immaturity of Paragon that he couldn't tell the difference between the two and that he thought that number one, it's a good idea to trick friends into telling you more information. But number two, that that is an admission and that there's nothing you can trust about a person.
0: That is the tragic character of Paragon because he's been abused so much and has had, memories and feelings from people who have been abused so much that he is paranoid of anything. And so he doesn't believe that he can have friends. Right. And when he's lulled into that saying like, Oh yeah, we're, we're getting close. We're so friendly. Then his paranoid, suspicious mind kind of triggers on anything and latches onto it. Like, of course they don't like me. They're doing this to get close to me, which right. is the the tragic part of Paragon.
1: Yeah. And it's very sad. And I think also interesting that in his kind of, I don't know if we can call it a panic attack or a meltdown or whatever is going on, but, in this scream fest about how he is true to the Ludlux. I think that's even more interesting that he's saying, you know, I've never been dishonest no matter what it looks like. And oh, I wish I could remember any of the details of what happens to the people that are on him because I like clearly it points to something shady going on. And that's why he's sinking people unless maybe it wasn't all that the people were bad. I don't know.
0: And we do learn more about that. I think the last book.
1: Right. I just don't remember any of it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So Amber is responding to him being like, yeah, I didn't know about Mingsley or anything. I wasn't sent by him. I just wanted to get to know you. "'You're a wonder and a mystery to me. "'My curiosity has always been greater than my wisdom, "'but largest of all is my own loneliness, "'because I'm a long way from home and family, "'not just in distance, but in years.' "'She's gathering up his beads he can hear, "'and he thought in desolation "'that she was gathering up to take them away. "'Amber?' he said pleadingly. "'His voice went high in her name and broke, "'as it sometimes did when he was afraid.' Are you taking my beads away? A long silence, and then, in a voice almost gruff, she said, I didn't think you wanted them. I do, very much. When she didn't say anything, he gathered his courage. You hate me now, don't you? He asked her. His voice was very calm, save that it was too high. Paragon, I. Her voice dwindled away. I don't hate you, she said suddenly, and her voice was gentle. "'But I don't understand you either,' she said sadly. "'Sometimes you speak and I hear the wisdom of generations in your words. "'Other times, without warning, you are a spoiled ten-year-old. 12 years old, nearly a man, damn you. "'And if you don't learn to act like a man on this voyage, "'you'll never be a man, you worthless, whining titty-pup.' "'He lifted his hands to his face, "'covered the place where his eyes had been, "'the place that the betraying tears would have come from. "'He moved one hand to put it firmly over his mouth.' so the sob would not escape. Don't let her look at me just now, he prayed. Don't let her see me. She was still talking to herself. I don't know how I treat you sometimes. Or I don't know how to treat you sometimes. Ah, there's the crab. I have them all now. Shame on you throwing these like a baby throws toys. Now be patient while I fix the string. He took his hand away from his mouth and took a steadying breath. He voiced his worst fear. Did I break? Are they broken? So he's sitting here thinking these thoughts like, no, I'm 12 years old. And obviously that personality kind of comes to the surface there and then has the reaction of people who have been yelling at him. And I think that's Kenneth right there.
1: I don't think so. You don't think so? I think that's the final Ludluck that turned him to a live ship.
0: Maybe. Young boy, but I thought that boy was a little bit younger than that. I could be wrong.
1: I think Kenneth was a little bit older than twelve when he took over Igrit's ship or whatever.
0: Well, he didn't take it over. He was part of Igrit's crew for a while,
1: right? But I'm saying, whenever he defeated Igrit,
0: yeah, Uh, he was part of the crew, and Paragon took in his memories when he was still young. So, yeah. yeah, he he would have been older when Igret finally, you know, died and he got his revenge or whatever happened there. But Paragon would still have the young Kennet memories.
1: But I don't think, I mean, the stuff that he took from Kennet, I don't think was a father yelling at his son that he's 12 now and needs to learn to sail like a man. Right?
0: It could have been his father before Kennet was taken. Could have I been could. Kennet's father. Okay. I mean, before Egret like, took over.
1: I guess we'll have to figure out when Egret took over.
0: Yeah, because I thought the, the son of the Ludlux when Paragon Quickened was younger than that.
1: I don't think they said a number, and 12 years old would be around the time sure. when they first get on a ship, right? Possibly, yeah. I guess Althea was younger, but...
0: Yeah, it could have been the... Yeah. Either way, he has those couple young uh, memories trapped inside of him.
1: And he's worried in this moment about the beads and breaking them, which Amber kind of scoffs at because she is a better workman than that. And they are perfectly fine. (laughs) She made them to withstand the elements and he threw them onto sand. So they will be okay. And even though these are going to be okay, and they were fine this time, she says that it's probably better not to do it because while they lasted against dropping on the sand, there are rocks around and they probably wouldn't do well against that. So he better not do it again. Like scolding a child.
0: I won't, he promised. And then asks, are you angry at me? And she responds, I was. I'm not anymore. You didn't shout at me. You were so quiet. I thought you had left. I almost did. I detest shouting. I hate being shouted at, and I never shout at anyone. That doesn't mean I never get angry, though, or that I never get hurt. And so we again hear some parallels to what we've talked about with the fool before. If you, you know, if you didn't know that Amber was the fool coming into these books. There's another couple of hints dropped in this chapter here where my curiosity has always been stronger than my wisdom. And this one here that the fool is very careful about, and Amber is very careful about the words that happen and doesn't react well to loud, angry conversations. Right.
1: And I don't think we've seen the fool yell at Fitz. No Fools definitely gotten angry with fits, but never yelled. And I think it's really interesting to hear from Amber that it's because they don't like shouting. They don't like being shouted at. So they don't shout at other people, but it doesn't mean that they're any less angry. Yeah. There's just other ways to be angry. And it doesn't mean that you aren't hurt either. And I think that's really important. I think it's a good message in general to be sending that like, just because somebody, especially the Paragon, yes, but just because somebody doesn't respond the way you expect an angry person should respond, doesn't mean that they're not just as angry as what you know as being an anger response. It just means that they have a different way of showing it.
0: And so Amber quotes a line from a poem, and Paragon latches on to that to change the topic away from anger and hatred and spoiled children. Perhaps if she told him the poem, she would forget that he had not apologized. He did not want to, her to know that he could not apologize.
1: But why can't he apologize? Right. I don't understand.
0: Because that's who he is. He is an angry, hate-filled, spoiled child. And he can't apologize for that because he can't change it? I don't know.
1: Oh, that's That feels like an adult thought. <laughs>
0: He's also an adult.
1: Yeah, I know. It just is like such a weird, like, I can't apologize for something that I did because that's just who I am. Like, well, you can still apologize and work on getting better. You can still try to change yourself for the better. But I guess if you're not going to try to change yourself for the better, it's better not to apologize at all because then how sorry could you really be? So whatever. Maybe that's part of it.
0: Well, we move on from Paragon, who is, again, we get a glimpse glimpse into him, and we don't really get much about Paragon, a difference about him, really, except, you know, glimpses into the young child's memories in him and how quickly he changes. But we do get a little bit of a look at the broader theme of Amber getting to know Paragon more and visiting him more. Right. But we move on to Kefria and Ronica. They are having a conversation basically about the future of the finances in the household and how Ronica had tried to let Nana go because they couldn't afford to pay her any longer. But she suggested that she just take half rate because she doesn't want to leave the house, which Ronica is very glad for. Because one, they can definitely use her. Two, Selden will definitely miss her if she goes. And three, Nana probably wouldn't be able to find a good job because she's getting older and a lot of the newly hired people are going to be younger in general to grow up with children.
1: Right. Yeah, it's definitely a hard situation. We see now full force just how bad the finances are. And we have... An interesting change in dynamic where Ronica is asking Kefria's opinion before just deciding to keep Nana on. Right. And Kefria is asking her mother's opinion, which I think is big too.
0: And Kefria moves on and asks about Rache, which Ronica instantly says the same. And Kefria begins, if our finances are so strained, perhaps paying Rache a wage is not as essential. And Ronica immediately interrupts and says, I don't see it that way. Kefria was silent, simply looking at her. After a short time, Ronica was the one to glance aside. Beg pardon, I know I've been too sharp with everyone lately. She forced her voice to be conversational. I feel it is important that Raish be paid something. Important for all of us. Not so important that I would put Malta at risk for it, but far more important than new frocks and hair ribbons. Actually, I agree, Kefria said quietly. I but wanted to discuss it with you. And so we have a little bit of glimpse of Veronica trying to be a little bit more easy to talk with right. in those conversations and trying to, you know, stick to the agreements that they had made before and you know give way to Kefria a little bit and let Kefria in on those conversations.
1: And she's doing it, obviously not perfectly, because when you do something forever in a certain way, it's really hard to learn to change. But she, they're doing it. They're working on it. And I think that's super promising and is hopeful that at least she's trying, that she's acknowledging when she's messed up and trying again to com- better communicate. It's super good. I like yeah. I genuinely am very proud of this growth in what seems to have been, I don't know, only a few months.
0: Right. Yeah. We also learn that they have the full amount and the penalty to pay to the Festrus, but they can't pay anybody else. So they've limited all of these uh, other expenses, they've let servants go, Nana's on half pay and so is Rage. They're going to be living simply, no new things or anything, but they have saved enough money to pay off the next installment of the debt. But everybody else will not be paid, and they're discussing how maybe some of them will be okay waiting until Vivesha comes in, because we've had word of her that she's on time to Jamalia. Hopefully, we can just deal with it as it comes up. So the Festruz is obviously the most pressing debt that they're in for the live ship itself, and they're just hoping that everyone else and all their other creditors let it slide until Vivesha comes back with the profit.
1: Right. And obviously the reason the Festru's debt is so important to pay off is because that's the only one where they can claim Malta as a default on the loan. And that's pretty insane. Right. And obviously way more important to protect Malta than it is to pay everybody, even just a little bit. So because they weren't able to make the last payment, It's really biting them in the butt now and Kefria doesn't know what to do. And so she asks her mother's opinion and her mom, like you said, is saying, we need to wait. We need to see who comes to us to ask first. And we're hoping that they'll be satiated by knowing that the ship is on time, that we can pay them as soon as the ship gets in, but maybe they won't be. And if that happens, then we can start selling property. But that's last resort, last case scenario, worst case scenario.
0: So Kefria has this thought that they've had this conversation before, but she just wants to hear it talked out again. And basically, Ronica's relating the whole plan that they have is sell jewelry, carriages, horses, all of that can come and go, but land is much harder to come by. So that is very, very last resort, but we will start doing that if we absolutely need to. She, Ronica, goes into the conversation that we've talked about before where Pretty much the best offers you're going to get for land is going to come from the new traders. And, you know, if they sell to them, they're going to lose a lot of goodwill from the old trader families. And we deliver, and they deliver more power into the hands of the new folks. So for Ronica, that's the most telling point, really. That's something that can never be replaced. But other stuff, we'll sell our jewelry and our assets before we sell the land. But if we have to, will survive and sell the land. Right. But they're hoping it's not going to come to that. And so they get into discussing news of the vivacia that they've gotten as well. Who has arrived in Jamalia on time. They had passing uh, the Vestroy. Uh, she held the Vestroy as she was moving into a certain strait. So they kind of have an update on where the vivacia is and how well she is doing. And it seems like it's... Gonna be okay. Veronica's voice was carefully neutral when she mentioned slaves, saying, If Kyle does as well with selling slaves as uh, as he believed he would, then when he returns, we should have enough to put ourselves current with our creditors. Kefria doesn't like the slaves either, but what else can they do? And she says, If he does well with the slaves, then we will have enough, she echoed her mother, but only just enough. Mother, how long can we go on just keeping abreast of our debts? If prices of grain fall any lower, we shall be falling behind. Then what? Then we shall not be alone, her mother said in a dire voice. And they get to talking about the current events of the world. Basically, if grain falls any lower, a lot of people are going to be having troubles. And that's not just the beginning of the troubles. It's not just going to be about making ends meet it's about war and how the satrap isn't doing anything good (laughs) right
1: and kefri is afraid of this she doesn't want war she doesn't understand why everybody can't just get along (laughs) essentially
0: she does say in her head well say she thinks in her head that despite her being born in Bingtown, Jamalia was still home. It was the motherland, the source, the prize, the pride of the folk of Bingtown, the seat of all civilization and learning. And that's kind of the sentiment. Like, they can't believe that there's going to be some strife in between the two uh, cities here. And Ronica sits quiet for a little bit and says, A great deal will depend on how the satrap replies to her envoys. There has been another disturbing rumor. They say the satrap will hire Chalcedian mercenaries as escorts for Jamalian trade ships and privateers to get rid of the pirates in the inside passage. Already people are arguing, saying that we cannot allow armed Chalcedian ships in our harbor and waters. But I do not think there will be outright war. We are not a warring people. We are traitors. And Ronica giving a little bit too much leeway and grace to the satrap saying like we're traitors. He has to be reminded like just point to the to the original agreement and he'll have to honor it when she doesn't know satrap Cosgo at all. And we know how that goes from the later books.
1: Right. All he needs to be reminded is, is to follow his word and he'll definitely do it. It's Pretty naive. And I mean, maybe that's what happens when you have generations of people ruled by benevolent satraps. I don't know. And
0: and a foundation of a city built on obeying contracts.
1: Right. But it's just so odd to me to think like, yeah, this guy who has been doing nothing for us, constantly breaking his promises and making the world way worse to live in. We just have to remind him that's not what his great-great-grandfather promised. So then he'll change. Like, I think he knows about the promise. He's doing this (laughs) anyway.
0: (laughs) And Kefria is pretty realistic in this situation as well, thinking that her mother was doing it again, speaking aloud what they hoped would be, trying to forge a reality from words. She's like, Ronica's manifesting. Don't think it's going to work this time. Right.
1: Go off, queen. Fingers crossed. (laughs) Probably not.
0: Apparently, uh, there has been talk that some money might have been offered in reparation. And Devad had suggested that, like, let's just name a price and he'll give us money and then everything will be square. And Ronica is totally against that, even in the dire straits that they're in. She, along with all the other vestrates, including Malta as a haven, have their morals, their standpoint, and will stick to that and believe in standing by their, their own decisions and their morals. And Ronica's like, no, we can't buy back our word or he can't buy back our word. It is our word. It is our contract. We're traders. This is who we are. We can't just accept some money for it and go back on anything that we've had for the history of Bing Town, you know?
1: Which is really odd to me because clearly this is a money issue and you'd think you might as well take the money, even if you disagree with the words and then just start a war. At least then you funded it.
0: <laughs> yeah. But also like she brings into it the Rainwild traders part of it because right. she says we stand between the world and our Rainwild kin. Shall we take money for our family?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you should. You should say, yeah. Also, the festers need some money, too. And um,
0: Rainwild traders are pretty rich. I I know. Well, that's the thing. That's the
1: thing. Ronica's like, oh, the poor Rainwild traders, we're the only thing they have. And it's like, uh, yeah. And they're also threatening to take your children based off of a contract that's hundreds of years old and have no qualms about it. They're going to take your kid or your grandkid and already have a bunch of gold. Like, you pay so much gold every single year for. A ship? Like, when is that ever going to be paid off? (laughs) How much could it possibly cost? Apparently a lot.
0: Kefria says, then it does not feel at all to you as if we would be selling her into slavery if a time came when we did not have the payment and they claimed blood instead. Basically talking about how they're still family and that we agreed with them and Kefria's thinking like, no, they're a threat to Malta. And Ronica's Basing her responses on tradition at the moment and saying that she's, you know, like they're a threat. No, come on, they're family. We agreed to this. And Ronica is silent after Kefria responds and thinks, no, I would not be happy to see her go. But, you know, Kefria, I have never heard of any Bingtown man or woman who has been kept against their will by the Rainwild traders. They seek wives and husbands, not, you know captives or servants so ronica's still basing like, her responses in the tradition that they've been on she cites one person who ran away and then a few months later begged the Rainwild family to take her back and kefria's like pretty sure her family like the rumor was that her family just pressured her to go back because it was really you know hurting their reputation <laughs> and ronica's like oh uh, maybe but She, Ronica still wants to believe that it's a great place to go. She wants to believe it. Just because it could possibly happen to her own family. She's trying to convince herself, like Althea does, that a certain way is true. Even if Ronica, I think deep down, truly feels like, yeah, this is really crappy. And later on, we see that she would help Malta and Kefria run away if they came down to it.
1: Right. No, it's definitely... Yeah, something that's hard. I mean, she mentions like who would want to marry somebody who wasn't willing, but also maybe they would. We don't know. It's again, Veronica saying her wishes out loud and manifesting that this is the truth. Right. And I don't know. It's just, it's rough. And it also seems like if. This is a willing thing. If it was truly like, well, we're going to take her and if she really hates it, we'll bring her back. Then do you still have to pay off the debt or does it count? Because they did take her with. You know what I mean? Like what?
0: I mean, you probably still have to continue the payments because. One person isn't offsetting the whole debt. It was basically. Isn't
1: it? I thought that's the whole deal. I thought you pay by blood or by coin. And if you don't have coin, you got to play pay by blood.
0: So yeah, for that payment, I think
1: just the one pay that doesn't make sense.
0: That was my assumption.
1: Oh, I was under the impression that like, that's the payment that like mm. now we're Maybe. even, I don't know.
0: Yeah, it might be. I mean, it'd make more sense, but
1: <laughs> yeah, don't love it. I don't know.
0: But Kefria bluntly states I don't want Maltek to go there against her will. Not for duty, nor for pride. Not even for our good name. If it came down to it, I think I would help her run away myself. Sa, help me, I fear I would too. Her mother's words came some minutes later, uttered in a voice that seemed dragged from her. Kefrey was shocked. Not just by what her mother was admitting, but by the depth of emotion that her voice betrayed. Ronica spoke on. There have been times when I hated that chip. How could anything be worth so much? Not just gold—they pledged, but their own descendants. If Papa had continued in the Raidweld trade, the vivacia would most likely be paid off by now. Kefria pointed out, "Most likely, but at what cost?" So Papa always said, Kefria said slowly. But I never understood it. Papa never explained it or talked about it in front of us girls. The only time I ever asked about him, or asked him about it, he just told me that. He thought it was an unlucky path to choose. And she says, perhaps we should re- reconsider that decision. Kyle would be willing. He made that clear when he asked about charts of the Rainwild River. Before that day, we had not discussed it. I thought that perhaps Papa had already explained to him. Before that day, he had never asked me why we stopped trading up the river. It just never came up. And if you manage things cleverly, it never will again, Ronica said shortly. Kyle up the Rainwild River would be a disaster. So another touchy topic besides Malta is Kyle, and it's brought up here. Right. But we get a little bit more of Ronica's familial connections and how far she'd be willing to go to smuggle Malta out so she didn't have to be forced to go to the Rainwild family. Even against their own social standing,
1: and against her word, which is yeah. like
0: which is huge. everything to her. Yeah. So, and then it moves on to the Rainwild River, which is another part of like the father figure, the patriarch of the family's word that he would never trade up that river. And we're talking about that now too. And Ronica's very against trading up the Rainwild River.
1: <laughs> right. No. And it's really interesting that they say that it'd be a disaster if Kyle went. I wonder if this is just because he would not be able to handle seeing Rainwilders. because I know in their towns, they aren't clothed, right? They are just right, freely just lo- looking the way that they do. So I don't think he'd be able to handle that. I think he'd freak out and that could potentially cost them all the relationship with their kin up the river. So not great. <laughs>
0: And it seems like a lot of the heads of the family there are women, too.
1: Right. Although, okay, question. If old, live, old trader live ships are the only ones that go up the river, all of them have to be fully manned to get the goods, So wouldn't that imply then that the sailors that are on those ships have seen the secret and they're not part of old trader families? So why are they trusted?
0: Well, there's a privilege to working on a live ship, as we said before, but I think they stay on the ship and only the captains go out into the city to trade.
1: But surely they would see them even if they weren't in the city.
0: Sure. And I think everybody knows something's weird about the Rainwild traders, right? Mm-hmm.
1: It just feels like there would be more information because those people aren't tied to any agreement. You know, like they didn't sign an NDA, (laughs) I assume. So they could talk to Mingsley and tell him everything they know and everything they've seen, but they haven't, which is the thing that's weird to me.
0: We've seen a lot of crews have a very big affinity and relationship with the live ship that they sail on. They're often there for years after. And this was I mean, yes, a, a good captain kept him on the Vivacia even when the Vivacia wasn't awakened right. because of their experience. But I feel like that's going to be similar throughout all the other live ships. And there's a depth of feeling there with the live ship not talking even that the old sailor gave Vivacia his, was it his earring of her right. likeness? Yeah. To keep like... There's a depth of feeling there and probably a sense of, like, I shouldn't betray them because they are a part of my life, too.
1: That's fair. But, I mean, I guess you could always pay somebody to try to join a live ship, right? True. On an expedition to learn. Yeah, I don't know. Doesn't make any sense to me, I guess. That's just something (laughs) that I feel like is a little bit of a plot hole, but maybe it's not. Maybe like you said, it's just a loyalty thing and everybody's extremely loyal to their live ships. I don't know. Or maybe they'd be murdered if they said anything.
0: True. (laughs) Dark conspiracy here. We get talking about the contract that the Festrues made and trading up the Rainwild River. And Ronica says that your father resented that contract. Oh, he loved the ship, and would not have traded her for the world, but as much as he loved the vivacia, he loved you girls more. And like you, he saw the contract as a threat to his children. He disliked being bound by an agreement he'd had no say in. In some ways, he thought ill of the festrues, that they would hold him bound by such a cruel bargain. Perhaps they saw things differently in those days, perhaps, her words faltered for a time, then, I suppose I lied to you just now. I speak the way I know I should think, that a bargain is a bargain, and a contract is a contract. But that contract was made in older, harder times. Still, it binds us. Kefria reminds her, but father resented it. And he and Ronica goes back to her original conversation saying that he just despised the terms and often pointed out that no one ever completely discharged a debt from the Wayne Wilds. New debts were always stacked upon the old ones so that the chains binding the contracting families together only got stronger and stronger as the years passed. He hated that idea. He wanted there to come a time when the ship would be ours, free and clear, and if we chose to pack up and leave Bingtown, we could do so. The very idea shook Kefria to the foundations of her life. Leave Bingtown? Her father had actually thought of taking the family away from Bingtown? And so Ronica continues to explain that, you know, though his father and his grandmother had traded in those goods, he always felt that they were tainted, that there was always some sort of consequence coming with, you know, tinkering with magic. And sooner or later, such magic would have to be paid for and he did not think it was honorable in a way for him to bring back to our world the magic of another place in time, a magic that had perhaps been the downfall of another folk, perhaps the downfall of the entire cursed shores. Sometimes he spoke of it late at night, saying he feared we would destroy ourselves and our world just as the elder folk did. They were both silent for a while, and Ronica clears her throat, saying, "'So he did a thing both brave and hard,' stopping trade up the river it meant he had to work twice as hard and be gone three times as much to turn the same profit instead of the rain wilds he sought out the odd little places in the inland channels to the south of jamalia he traded with the native folk there for goods that were exotic and rare but not magical he swore that that would make our fortune and if he lived it probably would have
1: this is something that wasn't chosen easily and we get a little bit more reasoning now. It's not just superstitious nonsense. It's actual thought behind the idea that, hey, I noticed that nobody's ever fully paid off a debt to the Rainwilds. And that keeps everyone chained here. And it's horrible. And I hate that blood is a sacrifice to pay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He really presented the idea of possibly losing a daughter. Right. Because he already lost his sons.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure he, it sounds as though he hated the idea of losing a son too, right? Like, I think this probably was a thought he had before his sons had passed. Right. That they were, and they're also in danger, right? Like, what's her name? Mrs. Festru pointed out that Selden, whenever he comes of age, could also be Wintro, but Wintro isn't around. so
0: Right. Yeah, and so Kefria brings up the rumor that we have talked about before, thinking that the blood plague came from the Rainwild magic. And Ronica demands, like, where did you hear that? Kefria responds that she was very little. She was overhearing words that Devad Restart was saying, cursing the Rainwild traders, saying that they had dug up the disease in their mining of the city. His wife and children were dead too. And Devad said... Ronica cuts her off saying, I remember I remember what Devad said, but you were too small to understand was that he was in the throes of a terrible grief. A man says things at such times that he doesn't truly mean or even believe. Devad badly needed someone or something to blame for his loss. For a time, he blamed the Rainwild traders, but he got past that a long time ago. So we have... Obviously, terrible grief going on in this. Kefria overhearing Devad curse the Rainwild traders for having the blood plague. And then her her father stopping trade with them. So obviously, yes, that rumor or that thought will persist. But we learn from Ronica that it was mainly the contract and maybe a little bit of that superstition. Because he feared that there would be a reckoning, you know, tinkering with that magic. Eventually, and and maybe he kind of echoed Devad's thoughts in that a little bit.
1: Right. Well, we don't hear that he echoed his thoughts. It's just that he was crying and he never cried. So it was a scary time. And she was obviously very young. So it would be hard to see. It's always hard when you see a parent cry who doesn't normally cry because then it's like, oh, this is scary. Like if they're crying, something must really be wrong. Because adults don't really cry <laughs> in front of small children. And yeah, I think it's just a really interesting thing to hear how that rumor got started and why she would think that way. Mm-hmm. But also hear Ronica say, no, it was never something so silly as that. And even Devod doesn't truly believe that. Like, you were young when this happened, so you wouldn't know. Like, it just, sometimes when something that sad happens, you just have to have somebody to blame.
0: Yeah. But they're interrupted. That conversation abruptly ends.
1: In the middle of, very interestingly, a question about Devad's son. Is it true that his son, and then she's cut off. And now I want to know what the rumor is about Devad's son.
0: Oh, I don't even mean, think it's brought up ever again.
1: No, I know. And so now there's just this juicy little tidbit. <laughs> a, little, a little hot goss, if you will, about Devad's son and something scandalous. And no, we'll never know. No idea.
0: And a gong interrupts them.
1: And this is the gong that denotes that Rainwild traitor is here or has arrived and that they need to prepare to accept them in, right?
0: Yeah, it's just denoting that the presence was there. It's a like Rainwild gong, as Kefri describes it. So it was a little scary that hearing that. While they were talking. talking about it. And they hear a scuff of footsteps in the hallway. They spring up and she sees Malta at the end of the hall. Obviously she was eavesdropping, right?
1: Yeah, clearly.
0: Yes. She calls out Malta sharply. Yes, mother. She was in her night robe and carrying a cup of a cup and saucer. What are you doing up at this hour? For an answer, Malta held up the cup. I couldn't sleep i made myself some chamomile tea did you hear an odd sound a few moments ago not really perhaps the the cat knocked something down perhaps not ronica muttered worriedly. and they go down to the kitchen it's just those three it's dark save the glow of the banked fires it's pretty familiar there but ronica brings to uh brings a candle from the den going to the door tugging it open Kefria asks if anyone's there, and Ronica says no. But she steps out onto the icy porch, looking all around, and then stooping to retrieve something. She brings it back in. It is a small package that is addressed to Malta. A
1: small wooden box.
0: Yes. And Malta, of course, is like, oh, it is? It's a gift. Great. What is it? What is it? Who is it from? Kefria, in her mind, is... Thinking that her face is alight with anticipation, she had always loved surprises. Kefria's thoughts about Malta just—it's infuriating because it's so innocent from her point of view. Right, everything's like, oh, she's just a little girl.
1: Yeah, it's viewing her through the lens of her being this innocent child, despite all of the things to prove that Malta is not innocent and not really a child anymore. She's growing up, she's becoming a moody teenager and she's conniving and
0: tricky. Right. And
1: yet Kefria never seems to grasp onto that.
0: Veronica kind of knows it and she keeps her hand firmly on the box saying, I believe it is a dream box. It is a traditional rain wild courting gift. Kefria of course knows what that means and how scary it is. So she's, she can't really catch her breath at the moment because she's like, what happened? Why is it happening now?
1: Right. And instead of being worried about a courting gift, Malta is trying to get under her grandmother's hand to tug the box away and saying, give the box to me. What's in it? I need to know. Like a child, like a child who's being denied a gift instead of realizing a courting gift. This is not a normal gift. This is somebody trying to court you. And that's very serious. And you can't just open a gift like that.
0: Yeah, But to Malta, it's like, yeah, but it's a gift. (laughs) Shouldn't they court me? That's fine. Uh, but is like, "No, we're going to go back to the study and we're going to have some questions for you and we're going to talk about this, okay? Let's go."
1: And then as the petulant child she is, "Mother, it's not fair. It's addressed to me. Make grandma give it to me. Mother, mother." Like grow up. <laughs> <laughs> "It's not fair." Okay? So, <laughs> life's not fair. <laughs> Not a great way to like handle a child, but still in all of this, Kefria is not, again, she's not explaining what's going on to Malta. She's not detailing the severity. She's just letting Malta talk and talk and just ignoring her essentially, which is part of the problem.
0: Yeah. She does answer saying Malta, didn't you hear what your grandmother just told you? It's a courting gift. How could this be? Malta, of course, is saying, oh, I don't know. I don't even know who it's from or what's in it. How can I tell you something about it if Grandma won't even let me look at it? Being very petulant. Kefria's sighing and saying, come to the study. And by the time that Kefria arrives there, Malta's already arguing with Ronica, saying, you know, can I at least look at it? It's for me, isn't it? And Veronica's trying to explain the depth of, of the meaning behind this and how dangerous it can be, saying that this is serious, far more serious than you seem to understand. This is a dream box and it's marked with the crest of the Cupris family. They are perhaps the most prestigious family of the Rainwild traders. It was not a coincidence that they came to represent all the Rainwild families at the last gathering. They are not a family to offend or to take lightly. Knowing that, do you still want this box? So, Ronica explains and gives her the opportunity opportunity to think it through and answer for herself like an adult. And then Malta immediately is like, yeah, I still want it. It's a gift. It's mine. So Veronica's like, okay, you didn't understand. Right. Not going like, to give it to you.
1: <laughs> like you can't open it because it's a courting gift and you can't offend. This is a super important family that you cannot offend. Do you still want it? Yeah. No thoughts. Just, yeah, of course I want it. It's a gift. Give it.
0: Yeah. And Kefria knows the proper thing to do, saying, like, it must be refused, but extremely courteously. We can't afford to offend that family. And that you're too young to be courting anyways is just a little misunderstanding. It's It'll be fine. And Malta's like, I'm not too young. I'm too young to be promised to a man, but why can't I consider his suit? Please, Grandma, at least let me see what's in it. And Ronica's trying, like... It's a dream box, you know, it has a dream in it. You open it and then you have the dream.
1: You don't open it to see what's in it. You open it to have the dream. So like there's nothing in the box. That's what she's saying. There is nothing here. It is magic. And you cannot open it because when you open it, that means that you have the dream and that's accepting the gift. It is a whole thing. And Malta just doesn't... She's not listening. She's well, not...
0: Kefri doesn't understand that either. She's like, how can there be a dream in the box?
1: Right. But it's still like... On Malta's end, there's no listening to what is being said. There's just... They have a present and they're not giving it to me. Right. And, and I need to do anything to get this present.
0: And when Ronica says that it's magic, Rainwild magic, Malta's even more attracted to that gift. Like, right. oh, can I have it tonight then? Like, that's amazing. I want Rainwild magic.
1: No, Ronica exploded. Malta, you're not listening. You cannot have it at all. It has to be returned as it is, unopened, with an extremely courteous explanation that somehow there has been a misunderstanding. If you open this box and have this dream, you have consented to his suit. You have given him permission to court you. Well, what's so terrible about that? It's not like I'm promising to marry him. If we allow you to open it, then we are accepting his suit as well, which is the same thing as saying that we consider you a woman and eligible to have suitors, which we do not, Veronica finished sternly. And then Malta crosses her arms and says, I shall be so glad when my father comes home. Will you, Veronica asks acidly. It's ridiculous. Yeah. This is a big deal, and I don't understand... How Malta and her little tiny pea brain is like, well, I can let somebody court me. That doesn't mean I have to marry them. Except it seems like in this society, l- allowing somebody to court you is the same as saying you're going to marry them. This isn't
0: Except she's modern a, dating. She's a child. She's, what, 12 or 13? Mm-hmm. So her ideas... By not listening to her parents, right. her ideas of courting and marriage are completely different than reality. So in her mind, she's set up these rules, which isn't true, but she's arguing based on those imaginary rules that she has in her head. So to her, it's completely logical. To us, who knows the society rules are like, nothing you're saying makes sense, Malta. <laughs> right.
1: It, it just, it's very frustrating because, it, well, that's the thing too, is she has made up these rules, but as even though her family doesn't go out all the time, they still go to trader events. She still goes to her friend Dello's house who is more connected and to the other little girl houses where they like do things more often. So she should know. She has lived in this society. There's no way she has not seen people do courting and starting in a courtship, going to marriage. That's not a coincidence. If every single person does it that way, that's how it works. And for her to think, well, of course I can officially court someone and not marry them. It doesn't make sense to me. How do you look at your society and look at what everybody is doing and say, yes, I'll accept a courtship from somebody that I don't even know, because that doesn't mean I have to marry them when in their society, that does mean that. Like I don't, She's she's lived in the society. I know that the Vestrates don't go to everything, but she is there. She's living in it.
0: She's seeing other people do it. We have, so that's maybe where she's getting her idea. We have views from Kefria who only courted one person and then was married, right? And I think the same with Ronica. So maybe that is happening more so in other places. Like they will court one or two and then get married or something. So maybe Malta's has some of those newer perspectives that is happening because of non-traditional things coming in.
1: I would think that people just like do like dates and stuff, but they're not courting until they're deciding to get married. Like you're not officially courting someone unless you're that's like engagement is at least how I understand it. And what it seems like is if you agree to courtship, that's basically you getting engaged.
0: Yeah. I was just offering up another. Yeah.
1: But I just, I guess I can see people going on dates that are like courtship dates and not being officially courting. But I think the wording is really important and her not understanding the significance of that doesn't make sense to me. I guess, like you said, maybe there is some stuff going on that we don't know. But
0: But again, she's a child that doesn't understand and thinks she does. So yeah. That's dangerous and Kefri is sitting here watching these two people argue back and forth and she feels invisible and useless there's a battle going on here a battle for dominance to determine which of these women was going to set the rules for the household while Kyle was away no she suddenly realized Kyle was but a game piece Malta threw in because Malta had already discovered she could manipulate her father he was no match for her juvenile deviousness as she grew he would be even less of a problem for her Plainly, she believed that her only only her grandmother stood in her path. Her own mother, she had dismissed as insignificant. So Kefria gets on this whole thing of like, well, aren't I insignificant? I've stood aside forever, for all of these years. And when Kyle came home, they had spent his wages mostly on amusing themselves. Now that her father was dead and Kyle and her mother were battling over the helm while Malta and her mother struggled over who would set the rules of the household. So no matter how it was decided, Kefria would remain invisible and unheeded because she'd never put in her, put a, herself in a place to be heated, really or took up those mantles of responsibility and Ronica retained the control of those reigns for a long time. So Kefria has it in her mind to gain a little bit more control and be a part of that and be more of a mother and says, give me the gift. As my daughter has caused this unfortunate misunderstanding, I believe it is up to me to rectify the matter. Ronica hesitates a little bit, glances at Malta, and then hands it over to Kefria and Malta's eyes Kefria notices that Malta's eyes tracked the box into her possession the way a hungry dog follows a piece of raw meat. I shall write to them first thing in the morning. I think I can ask the Kendri to ferry it upriver for me. So Ronica agrees with everything that Kefria is doing here, is kind of reluctant to hand the reins over to Kefria, as we've seen with other situations, but agrees with the way that Kefria is going about it because it's her way of thinking as well agrees with sending it upriver immediately as soon as she can with another live ship. Her mother gives her, you know, good reasons to keep it fully wrapped. So no one else sees it. But I think Ronica was hesitant in handing it over because she knows how devious Malta is and really doesn't want this messed up. Right. But has already given her promise to not interfere with things between Malta and Kefria if Kefria chooses to step in.
1: Right. And I do, I do think it's important that she doesn't voice any disagreement in front of Malta. She looks at Malta, realizes she can't say anything and agrees and gives Kefria more authority in that way and shows Malta Kefria is in charge and she does have power. And I think that's really important too, that even if internally Ronica's is disagreeing in any Way she is not letting that be known verbally,
0: right? And so Kefria makes Malta answer, like, "Do you understand that this is how it's going to happen?"
1: And not just that they have to send it back, but she cannot tell anyone that it has happened.
0: Yeah, exactly, not the friends, not the servants, no one. And Malta says, "I understand." Eventually, after she's barked at by Kefria, and Kefria says, "Good, it's all settled." I'm ready to go to bed. But Ronica stops them and says, there's another thing about this. They are not common items. Each one is individually made, keyed to a certain person. How? Kefria asked unwillingly. Well, of course, I don't know. But one thing I do know is that to create one, the maker must begin with a personal item from the intended recipient. Such a thing did not come to our door randomly. It was addressed to Malta specifically. Malta must have given something of hers to a rainwild man, something personal that he construed as a gift. Oh, Malta, no! Kefra cried in dismay. I did not! Malta sat up defiantly. I did not! She raised her voice in a shout. Kefra got up and went to the door. When she was sure it was firmly closed, she came back to confront her daughter. I want the truth. What happened and when? How did you meet this young man? Why did he think you'd accept a courting gift from him? And Malta is admitting in disgust that, oh, I met him at the trader gathering. I went outside for some errands. This was from a coachman, obviously, then. That's all.
1: I went outside for some air. I said good evening to a coachman as I passed by. I think he was leaning on the Cooper's coach. That's all. And first of all, not what happened.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Second of all, clearly not what happened because like Ronica just said, You have to have a personal item that he could have construed as a gift, the wine glass. So clearly you didn't just say good evening to someone as you passed by. (laughs) You gave him something. How did that happen? And I think the most frustrating part about this part that we're going to read is that Kefria just lets her go and just stops questioning her whenever she starts fake crying and just whatever and doesn't ever get the answer and just believes that she's just a little girl that's so upset. And it's like, no, she's not. She's just lying. She's getting her way. You just talked about how she's devious and can walk all over Kyle and then fall immediately for her trap without using any cognitive <laughs> skills as you, as an adult Kefria, should have to be like, hey, clearly she did do something, even if she's say- saying she didn't. Like, <laughs>
0: Veronica asks what this coachman looked like. And Malta's like, I don't know. He was from the Rain Wilds. They wear veils and hoods, you know? And her. Grandmother is like, yeah, I do know. But their coachman does not because they get their coaches in Bingtown. They're Bingtown coachmen. They don't drive their coaches down the river. So if it's a veiled man, he's obviously from a Rainwild trading family. So what did you give him and what did you say? And Malta's like, nothing. I said good evening as I passed him. He said the same. That's all. Then how does he know your name? How does he make you a dream? Ronica pressed. "'I don't know,' Malta retorted. "'Maybe he guessed my family from the robe color and asked someone.' Suddenly, to Kefria's complete amazement, Malta burst into tears. "'Why do you always treat me like this? "'You never say anything nice to me. "'It's always accusations and scolding. "'You think I'm some kind of whore or a liar or something. "'Someone sends me a present and you won't even let me look at look at it "'and you say it's all my fault.' "'I don't know what you want from me anymore. "'You want me to be a little girl, "'but then you expect me to know everything "'and be responsible for everything. "'It's not fair.' "'She lowered her face into her hands and sobbed. "'Oh, Malta,' Kefria heard her say herself say wearily. Really. "'She went swiftly to her daughter "'and put her hands on her shaking shoulders. "'We don't think you're a whore and a liar. "'We're simply very worried about you. "'You're trying to grow up so fast "'and there are so many dangers you don't understand.' "'I'm sorry,' Malta sobbed. "'I shouldn't have gone outside that night, "'but it was so stuffy in there and so scary "'with everyone yelling at each other. "'I know, I know it was scary.' "'She hated to see Malta weep like this, "'hated that she and her mother had pressed her "'until she had broken down. "'At the same time, it was almost a relief. "'The defiant, bitter Malta was someone Kefria didn't know. "'This Malta was a little girl, "'crying and wanting to be comforted. "'Perhaps they had broken through tonight.' Perhaps this Malta was someone she could reason with. She bent down to hug her daughter, who returned the embrace briefly and awkwardly. Malta, she said softly. Here, look here, here is the box. You can't keep it or open it. It has to be returned tomorrow intact. But you can look at it. Malta gives a sniff and glances at the box, but did not reach for it. Oh, she said after a moment, it's just a carved box. I thought it might have jewels on it or something. She looked away from it. Can I go to bed now?
1: Suspicious. Red flag. Sirens going off in your mind. She wanted it so bad she was trying to rip it from her grandmother's grasp. And now she won't even
0: touch it. And obviously she knew that there weren't jewels on it. She was close enough to see.
1: Yeah. She's acting like a child because she knows that's what her mother thinks of her as. And it's working. And I cannot believe it's working. (laughs)
0: And Ronica can't say anything, even though Ronica also kind of seems duped a little bit. But like we were talking about before, she can't interfere. She can't say anything. She can't disagree with Kefria in front of Malta.
1: It's just ridiculous because, first of all, if we recall back to how she was acting while people were shouting, she was fidgety and antsy. She didn't care. She was not scared. So all you have to do is think about that memory and go, "Mm, she didn't seem very scared.
0: She was talking about the weave in her robe. She (laughs) she
1: wanted to go get snacks. And when we kept telling her no for snacks, she wanted to go to the bathroom. So again, just use your brain a little bit and you would see that doesn't make sense. Why would she be scared? She wasn't scared. She was bored. And then on top of that, the only way to make this is to have something that the person gave them. So she's lying and her crying and pretending to be like, I don't understand why you think I'm a liar. Well, Malta, it's because you're lying. (laughs) We're accusing you of lying because you are lying. You cannot be telling the truth. There is no physical way for this to be the truth of what happened. And you continuously saying that that is just proves that you don't ever tell the truth. And the fact that they're just like, Oh, well she cried. So let's give her a moment. Like, Um, I'm sorry, bed without supper. I don't know. No, not bed without supper. You should not starve people as a punishment. But like, okay, well then we can talk about it in the morning after I lock you in your bedroom for the night so I know you can't get the stupid box. Like, I don't, oh, I hate Uh, it.
0: And Ronica does say like, you know, she's nodding sympathetically to Kefria who is saying, you know, sometimes it's so hard watching her grow up. And Ronica says, Lock that box somewhere safe tonight.
1: <laughs> yep.
0: Like, <laughs> she She's, yes, I think a little bit sympathetic towards Malta bursting into tears. And yes, what Malta says does have a ring of truth to it because they want her to act so grown up and understand things and be responsible for things. But also want her to stay a little girl. But that's because Malta wants to be an adult and needs to learn these things to be to go from a little girl to i don't know whatever. So there's a ring of truth to what Malta is saying and that kind of lures Kefria and a little bit of Ronica although Ronica's still like I don't think lock Ronica's lured.
1: I don't think Ronica. I think Ronica feels bad that Kefria has to deal with this, but I don't think Ronica it
0: falls for this at all. Right. She says like lock it up. You know, something's we need to keep that safe.
1: <laughs> but I think also like Just thinking about how, I don't know, her whole deal, it's like, this would be a perfect time to say, hey, listen, it might feel that way. It might feel like we want you to be a child, but are expecting you to do women things. But like you said, you have to do them if you become a woman. Like This is what becoming a woman means, and that's what you want. We're giving you what you want, but not letting you become a true woman until you understand what that means. You don't know what that means, so you can't be one. So that's why you still have to be a little girl. And I'm sorry that it feels that we are, you don't know what we want from you. And while we're on that topic, the reason this is so dangerous is because if you accept a rain wild courting, you will go to the rain wilds. That is what happens that that is, this is serious. And by the way, while we're on the topic, um, if we don't pay our debts, you have to go there anyway for marriage. <laughs> I feel like that's a perfect segue. I feel like, listen, I know you're crying. This is a lot, but let's explain the situation. Let's be adults. Let's talk about it. Let's explain to you what's going on. I'll, although obviously it wouldn't matter. She's not listening. She doesn't care what they no, say. She thinks that they just the make, thing. she thinks they just make stuff up to keep her from doing what she wants, which is wild because I cannot see Ronica or Kefria being the type of parent slash grandparent to be like, Oh, we can't go to McDonald's today because McDonald's is closed. like, They're not going to just lie about stuff to get her to get, not do it. I just don't see that happening.
0: Yeah. The outcome would be the same for sure. I
1: I just hate it. I hate every part of it. I hate it because like everybody's making bad choices. There's not a single choice that is made in this that I agree with. Right. And it, there's a slight break and we're into Malta's head and she has grabbed the box.
0: Yeah, Malta grabbed it from Kefria's secret hiding place that she hides everything in.
1: (laughs) Right. Like, I guess I get it. Kefria probably doesn't know Malta knows the secret hiding place, but don't you think you'd change it up this one time or, like, put it, like Malta says, under the pillow so that she would know if Malta came to grab it? It's not even locked. It's just in the place that she normally (laughs) hides presents and stuff. So, like... Uh, of course Malta has snuck in and grabbed it and it was way easier than she expected
0: and she brings it back to her bedroom and she gets from her own hiding place in her room the scarf and the flame jewel and for a time she just watched that before she recalled why she had taken it out she sniffed the scarf and then brought it back to her bed to compare it to the boxes sent Different scents, both exotic, both sweet, but different. This box might not even have come from the veiled man. Then, the mark on it was like the one on the coach. Yes, but perhaps it had just been brought from the Cooper's family or bought from the Cooper's family. Maybe it was really from Serwin. Over the years, she'd left plenty of personal things over at Dello's home. It would have been very easy, and actually, it was much more likely. When she thought about it, why would a chance met stranger send her an expensive gift? Like as not, this was a courting gift from Sirwin. The crowning piece of her logic suddenly fell into place. If the Veiled Rainwild man had puzzled out who she was and sent her a present, wouldn't he have reminded her to return his scarf and flame jewel at the same time? Of course he would. So this wasn't from him. This was from Serwin. Which is so, f- like, the final piece of her logic fell into place, which is all built on a throne of lies.
1: If this man, <laughs> if, yeah, if this man I met... Did send me a courting gift. Why wouldn't he ask for his other gift he gave me? Obviously it's not him. Well, if he thought you were going to court him, he probably wouldn't ask for it back, now would he? Because you'd be married and he'd get it back eventually. (laughs) Duh. Oh. Or my because God.
0: it's like a gift.
1: Or because it's a gift. <laughs> just like she gave him. Oh, I can't. It's so stupid. Like, yeah, my grandma just got done explaining how this is like a traditional Rainwild gift, but it's definitely Serwin who I haven't talked to in a while.
0: She's like running her finger around the tracing of the carvings of the box and saying, Oh, Sirwin. <laughs> what kind of dream would he have chosen for her? Her lips curved in a smile. She suspected she knew. Her heart fluttered in her chest. It's so. I don't know. Her logic is so bad. It's It's very childlike.
1: It's (laughs) that's not what I want it to be. So I'm going to make up a situation in which it can be the one I do want.
0: Very like Ronica.
1: Yeah, I suppose (laughs) very Vestra of her and and Elthea. And then she closes her eyes, preparing to open this box and be taken away to Sirwin's dream. Except it is an opening, and she has to open her eyes, and it takes her quite a while to pry open the latch and open the box to nothing, just like Ronica said. Except, instead of remembering that this is a dream, there's nothing in there but a dream, she gets mad and decides that her grandmother or her mother has taken the actual gift. That they made a whole big deal just so they could steal the gift for themselves. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Unless, perhaps, one of them had opened it and taken out whatever was in there and kept it for themselves. I hate them both, Malta hissed in a savage whisper. She flung the box down to the rug beside her bed and threw herself back on her pillows. She knew she should get up and go and put the box back in her mother's wardrobe, but a part of her didn't care. Let them find out she had taken it. She wanted them to know that she knew they'd stolen her present. She crossed her arms unrepentantly on her chest and closed her eyes. So yes. Petulant child throwing a tantrum saying, it's everyone else's fault. Right. They're lying and stole my gift from Sirwin. <laughs> it's like, it's hilarious because it's a book. You right. Know? Like it's actually hilarious. But since we're so involved with this story and the characters, it's so infuriating at the same time.
1: It's like. What's the point of her ears? Are they for decoration? Because she's not listening. She doesn't listen to anybody. She just makes up stuff as she goes. And it doesn't make any sense to me. Like two adults were very worried and upset. And instead of being like, oh, this is serious. She's like, clearly they're trying to keep a cool present from me. What? In what world? When has that ever happened? When have two adults been mad and kept a present that was addressed to you ever in your life, Malta? Right. Like, what? Where does she even get the idea? I don't, like, I do not understand her blatant mistrust of her grandmother and her mother. I mean, I know that Kyle hates women and stuff, and, like, clearly that's part of it, but Kyle is away all the time, too, before this, right? Like, he's still sails ships for a living so he's not there most of the time so when did he have time to impart this onto Malta to be so mistrusting of his mother of her mother and her grandmother why I do not understand that doesn't make any sense to me why she just assumes they know nothing what is going on in the outer world to make her feel like that is justified I we don't know enough. And it really like that part frustrates me the most. I'm like, what has happened in her lifetime? Like that is so different than what we see in this book that she makes the logic that they just hate her and are lying to her at every chance. Well,
0: I don't think it's anything outside of this book, really. I think it's explained throughout these books um, in, in a little bit, in little glimpses where She is visiting friends and they have parties all the time and they have, you know, expensive, lavish things. And she goes home and doesn't get much. So she builds up this resentment because she thinks that they can't be poor, right? We get that Uh, revelation later. They can't be poor. So obviously they're withholding things from Malta. And then she has, you know, talks with Dello and other people like that who are talking about, you know, getting new dresses, about talking about men, how, you know, young men are coming over to visit Sirwin. And none of that happens at the Vestrit household. And again, she's like, oh, I'm being he- withheld from my rightful place in a woman's society, you know? And gets all of this resentment built up until finally she confronts, you know, her mother and father like, I need want to go with this ball and I want a new dress. And her father gives her all of the reason to be like, yep, you deserve this. And then on the other hand, her mother and grandmother are like, no, you cannot do this. So over time, all this resentment builds up and ultimately you have an out front confrontation of you are not a woman. You do not belong in this part of the world yet. When Malta has been getting reassurances from her friends, from her father, that yes, she does. So... Not that small of a leap to be like, this is what I deserve and my my grandmother and my mother are out to get me.
1: Yeah, I guess that makes more sense thinking about it that way. I didn't think of it like that, but...
0: It's just yeah. like, yeah, it's completely unjustified right, from our point of view, but from Malta's point of view, who has no grasp on reality Fair. <laughs> or her financial situations, even doing the books is like... We're suddenly poor? Yeah, right.
1: Which again would let you think she'd be like, oh, maybe that's why I can't get dresses. But like,
0: no, it just doesn't is she have just critical thinking dumb? skills to link that. Like, I don't,
1: <laughs> like, she doesn't seem dumb, but then she's that not, feels really dumb. Like, she's am I not just
0: book smart. Am I, we'll, we'll say that.
1: Yeah, am I just misunderstanding what a 12 year old should be able to understand, like the brain development of a 12 year old or 13, however old she is? Like, I think so. Because that's like.
0: Was that, like sixth grade, seventh grade?
1: She's in like sixth grade and she can't put two and two together that like, oh, the books say we're poor. So that's why we can't get new dresses.
0: I think that's seventh and eighth grade is 13 and 14. So it's
1: been a long time since yeah. I was that age. So maybe I'm just just thinking that she should know more at that age. But I like, was like
0: learning algebra and stuff, critical thinking, like reading through novels and writing papers. Like she should be able to, but I just don't think she's book smart. And I think any tutors that she had, she lied to them and got off.
1: Yeah. I mean, it does say that she doesn't go to school regularly. She goes whenever she's bored. Right. It's not like something that happens like a class.
0: I don't know. Her ability to string things together is miraculous, though. I will say that.
1: She's very creative. (laughs) She could write some books.
0: But she falls asleep and falls into the dream. Stillness, emptiness, only a voice, a whisper. So, Malta you have received my gift. Here we mingle, you and I. Shall we make sweet dream together? Let us see. Then her awareness that it's a dream fades, and she is in this reality, this dream. And it is a kidnapping scene. She is in a burlap sacks, flung over a shoulder of somebody who is being carried... Uh, rapidly and triumphantly against her will. The one who had her had companions. There was hooting and hollering, whatever. Um, Her mouth was gagged, her hands bound behind her. She wanted to struggle, but was afraid that if she did, he might drop her. No idea where she was or what might be, uh, what might befall her if she did escape her captor. So frightening as it was, it was still the safest place she could be at this moment. She knew nothing of the man who carried her except that he would fight to the death to keep her. They reached somewhere, they all stopped, and they were speaking a conversation that she didn't understand. And after a time, she heard footsteps receding. She sensed the others had gone, and she was alone save the man who still held her bound wrists. She trembled. There was a cold miss- kiss of metal against her wrist, and suddenly her hands were free, and she immediately clawed her way free of the sack pulls the gag from her mouth and was still half blinded by the dust and fibers from the rough burlap and kind of takes in the scene around her. So there's the captor right there with a dark hood pulled far forward watching her from its depths and she was just kind of sitting there watching him while he was watching her. And she's like, if she ran, would he pounce on her? Was this a cat's game? If she escaped, would she be plunging herself into greater danger? It timed. Its, in time, it seemed to her that he was watching her and letting her make up her mind about what she would do. So after a time, he made a sign with his head that she should follow him and they walked for a while and eventually found their way towards a city and turned into a door with music coming out of it.
1: Right. It does mention that the night is kind of foggy and that it smells swampy and thick. And that they are going through this labyrinth and her captor seems to know the way very easily. And they go to a building.
0: Yeah, like an inn or something like that. And they sit down and he pushes back his hood and for a while they just look at each other.
1: When he finally turned aside to lead her down some steps and then to open a door... When the door was opened, sound boomed out, music, laughter, and talk, but all of a style and language she did not know, and so it was all just noise, deafening noise, so that even if she had been able to understand her companion, she would not have been able to hear him. It was some kind of inn or tavern, she surmised. And they sit on the table, holding hands, just chilling in this area.
0: Well, they're not holding hands yet.
1: Oh, that's true. (laughs) They're just looking at each other from across the table while everything is going on.
0: He was handsome in a pale way, beardless and blonde, his eyes a warm brown, and he had a small, soft mustache. His shoulders were wide, his arms well-muscled. He did nothing at first save look at her. After a time, he reached across the table, and she put her hand in his. He smiled. He smiled. She suddenly felt that they had come to a so perfect an understanding that she was glad there were no words that could interfere. A long time seemed to pass, and then he reached into a pouch and brought, brought out a ring with a simple stone on it. She looked at it and then shook her head. She was not refusing the ring. She was only saying that she did not need an outward symbol. The agreement they had already reached was too flawless to complicate with such things. He put the ring away. Then he leaned across the table towards her and kissed her. Only their mouths met. She had never before kissed a man, and it stood goose flesh up all over her to feel the softness of his mustache beside her lips. All time stopped, hovering like a nectar bird in that one sweet moment of decision to open or remain closed. Somewhere a distant male amusement, but one that approved. You have a warm nature, Malta, very warm. Even if your ideas of courtship hark back to that most ancient custom of abduction. It was all fading now, whirling away from her, leaving only that tickle of sensation on her mouth. I think we shall dance well together, you and I. That's the end of the dream. This is Rain, not Sirwind, Malta.
1: Yep. And And
0: Rain as he sees himself, or would be without.
1: I think how he would be without the curse, I guess is what
0: we could call it. In, in his words at the end, it's obvious that she set the tone for it. So she feels that the ancient custom of abduction, which is, I think, like an old, very old mm-hmm. tradition slash view on love.
1: Although not old in some parts of the world in today's. Yeah, true. I know in Vietnam, that was still something that the Hmong people did, um, at least still in the 1900s. That's what. One of my Hmong friends in college told me that, like, her parents and grandparents had people in their village that still did it.
0: Oh, yeah. So, yeah, she has that, uh, according to Rain here, ancient custom of abduction as a view for love. Probably a very old romantic and, like, story-driven kind of thing. Right. Because she is a child and it only knows about love through those fairy tales and stories. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So... That's the scene that she set up and then he leads her to probably his part of just like seemingly maybe one of the Rainwild cities or I, like, All
1: of it is Rainwild. All of it is the Old have, Elderling.
0: Do they have different languages though?
1: I think it's all in Elderling time because it's oh. Elderling magic that they're using. So although yeah, you get to set it up, it's probably still tied to that original. It's all memory, right? It's all Oh
0: yeah, possibly. Yeah.
1: So I just assume this is all the rain, wild city that he dug the magic up from as it was originally.
0: Right. And so he knows where to go because he's been there. He's been there. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. That's a, that's a good theory. I like that. And so Malta is like, Oh, this is perfect. We're just like holding hands. I don't need a ring,
1: but I definitely want to marry him. We don't need an outward symbol of our love. Yeah, and it is very little girl romantic idea of what, courtship is I guess and I guess we have to say it again really gross that rain is like attracted to this naivety and child likeness considering he's in his 20s and Malta is 30 or not 30 sorry 13 yeah I <laughs> think most. rain is like 20 2021 20, and yeah she's like 12 13 so, obviously, very gross. And of course, she's going to be. Have an idealized version of what this is. And yeah, like you said, have the. The only thing she has to go off of is stories. And it's really weird to me that he's like, oh, Malta, you're a warm person when everything we've seen about her from her point of view into this point does not say that about her. <laughs> like, right. I don't think she's made a single warm choice that was. For that was good for anybody but herself since we've been reading from her point of view.
0: He's smitten as well.
1: That's true. I don't know. Very odd. But yeah, I do. I do think it's interesting to see the dream box in action. I think it's cool to know. Like try to figure out how it works. But yeah, it seems to me like it's the rain wild city that they're from because I don't think this is Kelsingra because of all the swampy references. And I know that it's not. And I know like the age of cataclysm came and changed the way all the continents look now. But I think it's pretty safe to say that the rain where the rain wilds are was probably always sort of swampy before everything got destroyed. So I don't know.
0: Interesting chapter that oh man, this starts the Yep the next chapter of frustration from Malta's point of view. Yep. It's not Sirwin, it's this gross man. <laughs> Ugh. And
1: she in her dream agreed. But then again, I guess it does say when the dream starts that she didn't know it was a dream by the time it got to the actual dream portion. And, like, it does feel a little scummy to, like, agree to marriage in a dream senti- setting where it's well, all fantastical and she doesn't know it's a dream.
0: She also, don't, like, didn't really agree to marriage, really.
1: He proposed with a ring and she's like, I don't need an outward symbol, but I agree is, to the is ring. Is
0: that what's typical in this world? Is a ring a proposal or is it just another gift?
1: Well, she said that she didn't need the outward show of their love so that implies that it is an engagement ring right
0: maybe I'm just saying like we don't know if that's the custom I don't think we've had any any reason to believe that would it wouldn't be the custom but I don't think we've had any reason to believe that, that it would be
1: I think because she says that she wasn't refusing the ring she just didn't need the outward symbol that implies that it is indeed known as a wedding engagement thing Maybe if it's just a gift of a ring, why would it matter if she turned it down or took it like taking it wouldn't mean that they're connected in any way unless it was a significant ring like an engagement ring. To me, to
0: me, it was only like because it says uh, the agreement that they had already reached was too flawless to complicate with such things, meaning the ring. I took that as to be like, yeah, this courtship is wonderful. We'll continue with this courtship kind of thing. Like the agreement that we're well together.
1: But I think it also goes back to my view of what courtship means in this time period is that it's an engagement. And then after the end, you get married.
0: Right. And I don't fully ascribe to that.
1: Sure. Which you don't have to. But I'm just saying, like, if you look at it that way, it still makes sense that, like, I don't know. Either way, I think the ring has to be a symbol of relationship status whether that's engagement or just even courting, I think no matter what, it seems to have a significant meaning.
0: Sure. Yeah, possibly, for sure. It's an interesting one for sure. And we'll talk about Malta and rain and Sirwin more in the future. Yep. Do you have any thoughts about, that situation or Malta's manipulation or Paragon and Amber, please let us know. You can email us at isfitshappy at gmail.com, or you can message us, comment on our posts, DM us, whatever. Uh, on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We're at isfitshappy on all of those. And we do have a YouTube as well at isfitshappy. Thanks so much for listening.
1: Can't wait to hear from you next week. So now we're going to talk about some of the things that you guys have brought to our attention. This week is very Wintro heavy. We had two messages, one on Facebook and one through email about Wintro and why he didn't leave when the um, he had helped the slaves get better, I guess. <laughs> helped the
0: slave die. <laughs> yeah, gave the blessing the of
1: Saw to the slave. And this was for episode 137. So Jessica wrote into our email to say that potentially the reason Wintro didn't move is because Wintro was still reeling from the effect of using that kind of magic. Uh, Jessica brings up the point that earlier in the book and One of the first few chapters we have with him, he takes a minute to get back to his body whenever he makes the stained glass art. And so maybe this is somewhere in that vein. And the reason why he is just vibing and not really listening to people's words, he's only just thinking about the emotion that's there and enjoying the space around him. And that does actually make a lot of sense. That's a very good reason as to why he wouldn't immediately be like, "Okay, this is done. I'm going to go. So I like that descriptor, but it could be from the use of the magic that leaves him to be a little bit more extended.
0: Yeah, and it kind of tracks with what we know about skill as well and how he is saying that he hasn't used these kinds of things before on his own and he hasn't done something like this for a while. It's just not practiced very well for him, so he probably doesn't have that presence of mind to immediately you know, go back to his body and he's kind of lured by that melding in the world and reveling in the beauty of Saw that he does when when he does skill. Right. So, yeah, it, that does track pretty well.
1: It does also kind of, in thinking of it that way, make me think of how when you're trained to use a skill, you're trained to ignore the good sensation because it can drag you under. And I guess I wonder if maybe that's not how the priests teach about it. You have to like part of, because that's saw. So you can't like cut out saw and the goodness of saw. And so I wonder if they just have a different way of making sure you're not pulled under. You just like feel the surface level thing. I I don't know.
0: I feel like it also might've been, taught differently if Galen wasn't the one doing the teaching, so. Well, I mean, yes
1: and no. I think you're still not supposed to. like, Right, yeah. You shouldn't be feeling that sensation all the time. It's very addictive, I'm sure. Although maybe there is a problem with the priest using it like a drug, you know? Who knows? But Jonas had a different theory and said that potentially it was just because he wanted to see the fruit of his labor and feel good about it since he has been away from the monastery for so long and wanted to get back for himself. It's just something to like, it could also be part of his naivety and that he had a ton of opportunities. He just chose not to use them. Who knows?
0: Yeah. And that like, he changes kind of his reasons for being a priest later on, like right now, like judging the slaves, for example, um, by their looks, you know, Wintro feels sorry for them but he wants to go back to the monastery go back to his previous life and later on jonas is saying that maybe he becomes a a priest or like reconciles with his beliefs in a different way and it's more true to being you know a believer in saw and a priest for the right reasons right within himself so i don't know a little bit of a A little bit of a not worthy kind of thing right now for Wintro. (laughs) Not quite that harsh, but it's uh, some learning and growing to do yet for him.
1: Right. So either way, um, definitely not the best. (laughs) But it's interesting to have both of those um, explanations put out there for us. And we really enjoyed hearing both. Jessica also made mention in her email that... Uh, the scene where Kenneth gets his leg bitten off is so cool and they really enjoyed that whenever they read it. And so I thought that was funny and I would also mention that, but it is pretty cool. It's an interesting scene and it's described so well. It's a very fun time, although not for Kenneth, I'm sure. (laughs)
0: Thank you so much for sending in those thoughts about Wintro. It's always interesting to dive into his character. It's very nuanced in his beliefs. And he holds so strongly to certain things that that throughout the, the whole book trilogy, that it's interesting to find subtle differences in how he changes. Because his values do fairly pretty much remain the same. I just think he grows as a person and we might be seeing, you know, the start of that journey.
1: Yeah. Either way, thank you. It's always good to hear your points of view. So thank you, Jessica and Jonas and everybody else who wrote in. I also want to end with another Jonas comment that was a question from 138, episode 138, where I asked, why did Kefria and Ronica not tell Malta that she may have to be married off if she presents herself as a woman? And Jonas said, oh, you mean, why didn't they make use of the famous communication skills of the Vestrits? which is a very funny joke. So I thought I'd mention it.
0: Yes. Famously known for talking through all their problems, just like all the main characters in every single book that we've read.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So thank you all for writing in and we look forward to hearing from you next time.